Welcome to the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. I'm your host, Meg Ricci, and this podcast series is about demystifying hormonal issues and struggles facing so many women today. And I'd like to start off the podcast by extending to all my listeners a very happy and extraordinary and magical 2020. So may this be the best year thus far in your life, and may each year that follows be even more magnificent. So there is no better way to start off the podcast series of the Hormone Lifestyle Zone for 2020 than to have a discussion on the next topic where we're going to lift the sheets and have a little pillow talk. We're going to talk about sex. In today's episode, what's not happening in the bedroom? What can we do to create more intimacy inside and outside those four bedroom walls? Because 15 to 20% of couples are in a sexless relationship. Studies show that 15% of the married population below 50 haven't had sex in the past year, and less than 20% report having sex a few times per year or even monthly under the age of 40. Well, this also extends to women in their 20s and 30s, and I started seeing more and more clients struggling with libido, low libido, difficulty having orgasms, sexual fulfillment, and I wanted to explore this more. And I'm really excited to be able to do that with my next guest, Alina McLaughlin. She is an awesome Washington, D.C. therapist that specializes in sexual issues. And Alina and I met at a Friday morning workshop at the Viva Center on, uh, in DuPont Circle when I was working up there last year. And we went out for coffee and spent a couple of hours talking. And I fell in love with her kind heart, her deep understanding and passion for helping women and couples struggling with intimacy issues and gaining a deeper connection. So Alina, I want to welcome you to the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. Wow, thank you. That was a wonderful welcome, Meg. (laughs) (laughs) And a happy new year to you. Happy New Year. Thank you. You know, Alina, you've been a social worker for 20 years. You've seen a lot and have an incredible wealth of experience. You've uh, worked, you worked in the fields of chemical dependency, domestic violence, school-based mental health, and trauma. But now your focus is in the area of sex therapy. So what brought you here? Why has this become your calling that you're so, actually, you're so good at what you do? You really, really are. So tell us, share. Okay. Well, I had a very roundabout way of kind of coming into this um, new passion that I have. Um, I started off social work school wanting to work with kids, actually, and uh, quickly realized that kids come with adults. So then I morphed and started working with families. And then I realized, like, ooh, the parents need to be on the same team in order for this work that I was trying to do with kids to be effective. Mm -hmm. So then I started doing couples therapy and realized like, wow, like communication is key in relationships. So once I started to dig into that, I kind of got hooked. And then of course, couples have sex. And I kept seeing how it just kept coming into the consultation room. And it just seemed to be creating these really significant blocks. So I started learning more about the dynamics of um, the sex lives of couples. 
And because my background is with trauma, particularly sexual trauma, um, I started to see couples whose lives have been interrupted by sexual violence and realize that a great healing can come from having a connected, positive, pleasurable sexual interaction with a partner. Um, and then also just, you know, really focusing on your own sexuality and having a more positive view of yourself as a sexual being. So that's kind of how I ended up here being a sex therapist. <laughs> so I guess the lead in is why aren't women having sex? And that goes for men too. But what, what is what, what are you seeing on your end? I know what I feel is contributing to this pattern that I, I think is becoming epidemic. And um, it's funny, I had a a client today, or one of my clients, I should say. And when I brought up the topic of sex, everything got really quiet because I realized <laughs> it's just not happening at home and it's yes. becoming the norm. So let's just like dive in. What's going on with women and sex? Oh my goodness. It's, it's, this is a really complicated issue and it's hard, it's hard to really measure, you know, one of the things that I, I really like to just hold out there is like sexuality is very fluid, right? And people are on very different ends of the spectrum in how they express their sexuality. So I also want to leave room for people who are asexual and maybe sex is just not their thing, right? So that's like a separate category. So I'd like to kind of focus what we're talking about today mm -hmm. on people who would like to have sex with other people, mm -hmm. but have barriers that keep like stopping them from accomplishing their goal. And sex is so important just as part of our, you know, life force that this is definitely something that is alarming. And you're hearing more and more of sexless couples. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it's important to mention like, these, you know, like people who are young, the millennials, they call mm -hmm. them, um, are not having sex for a lot of different reasons. So I like to just kind of label them as barriers. Like there are big barriers in people's way for sex. So question, you <laughs> said millennials are, are not having sex for different reasons. Can you kind of break up are we going to get into that and yeah, why different ages and groups? And mm -hmm. Some of the statistics that you just mentioned mm -hmm. um, really are talking about people, I would probably say, um, from 30 and above. People right. who are in long-term relationships. And mm -hmm. so when you say couples haven't had sex for a year, um, that kind of excludes the millennials who may not be even part of a couple. Right. And so if you're not um, even part of a couple, then you're already having sex less. <laughs> and then if you're part of a generation that's really disconnected, I think disconnected in ways that, um, you know, my generation didn't have to deal with. And so it's like this or I shouldn't say disconnected. It's like a pseudo connection. You know, like there's a lot that happens on the online you know, kind of universe mm -hmm. in not necessarily face-to-face. -face. And particularly, you know, sex is 
typically done, you know, face to face. And if you're not really developing those skills or you're used to connecting with people online, when you're naked in the bedroom, it can cause a lot of anxiety. You know, I... I had mentioned to you uh, when we spoke the other week about in Japan, this is becoming a real issue. Yes. Mm-hmm. Nearly a third of Japanese people entering in their 30s uh, without any sexual experience. And the country's current population is 127 million. And by 2065, there will be a decline of nearly 40 million people. That's a third loss in population. Yeah, and that article really had me paying attention, like, what is going on, right? That we're talking about a country not having sex, not giving birth, Yeah, right? That's serious, you know, ramifications for this problem. It is, it's a big problem, and I wonder at, at one point, will that ever echo down and trickle into the Western culture or here in the United States, um, because yeah. that's, it, it's alarming. So what are some of the breaks or, or, yeah, what are some of the breaks that actually dampen a woman's desire to have sex? Yeah. Let's get into the nitty gritty. So, yeah, let me, let me, I love Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are. I feel it should be mandatory for reading for anybody who has a vulva or is planning on coming anywhere near a vulva. I love how she breaks it down into just really understandable ways of how a woman's um, desire arousal system works, right? And part of the way she explains it, really simple, it's like, think of it as a car. A car has a gas pedal. So everything that you think, hear, touch, feel, smell, or believes sends a signal into your brain and you get turned on, right? Or a car has a brake. And so everything that you think, hear, touch, smell, feel, believe sends a signal that this is a threat or this is a turnoff. So when you think about it in that arena, there's really common breaks that happen that dampens a woman's desire to have sex. And so I'm going to talk about them and and each one could probably be its own podcast. (laughs) And and I just want to mention, I checked out Emily Nagasaki a few days Uh ago and she Uh has a fabulous TEDx talk on this, I think from 16. And then she did a TED talk from last year. So please people check her out. She's extraordinary. It's a must. You know, most women who um, read it say it's been life changing for them. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So some of the breaks, and and I want to also do a caveat that there can be a lot of different breaks. You know, it's very individualized. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody is experiencing their breaks and accelerators in very different ways. But I'm going to talk about some just general ones that tend to happen, and we can kind of lump some things into these categories. So the biggest one that I think is just pervasive, so like everybody, is our cultural attitudes about sex. And so our cultural attitudes about sex have such a huge impact on us. 
Our brain is our biggest sex organ. It coordinates the complex system in our bodies that are involved with our sex and how we express our sexuality. And I don't think that the average person spends enough time thinking about all the sex sexual messages that surround them and how they absorb them into their brain. A lot of it can be really damaging to our psyche and conflictual at best. I think we just, you know, kind of get absorb it and can you give some examples yeah so um a lot of what we're we're swimming in like this sexual soup that's really toxic toxic so unrealistic expectations lack of basic knowledge Mm -hmm. about our sexual organs and how they function cultural norms about who should or shouldn't have sex when people should have sex how much sex is enough how much is too much what is the definition of sex you know, this is, uh, this is included, but it's, you know, it isn't what's included and what isn't. It's crazy. It's just, it's very toxic and anxiety provoking and controlling. And it robs people of their right to express their sexuality in a way that feels pleasurable and natural to them. Mm -hmm. So American cultures, you know, we sell, you know, I, I don't even have to give examples because there's so many Sex sells everything from burgers to cars, right? There's right. always this sexual undertone. But at the same time, it's taboo and people don't really talk about it. So that dichotomy causes like this internal conflict within, mm-hmm. especially for women. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, our, you know, our heads are creating the significant breaks in our arousal system. It causes this, you know, like all everything that we absorb into our brain um, comes out when we're in the bedroom, right? And so now we have these conflictual messages, right? If we're too sexual, then we're a slut. If we're not sexual enough, then we're frigid, right? And society and the media have a very narrow idea of what is sexy. You know, what Um, You have to look like to be sexy, how you have to act to be sexy. And people either break their necks trying to fit into this little narrow image or they just avoid it altogether. Right. Body image can derail your sex life quick. Yep. Right. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure you see this in your line of work. Right. So if you're not feeling comfortable with your body and being naked and, and not really understanding like all the things your body can do then you just don't feel comfortable being naked in front of other people. And I think it gets to a point where you don't even feel comfortable being naked in front of yourself, right? So feeling um, unsure and awkward about how to have sex or um, if your turn-on isn't considered normal, then there could be a lot of shame and those will shut down your desire pretty quickly. Well, as well. you know, I think what's interesting about what's normal, I think I feel normal is if your partner likes it and you like it and you're both happy together with what you do, that's your norm. That's right. That's, that's exactly your norm. That's it. That's your norm. <laughs> and that's what makes people happy. I had, uh, this is wild. I had uh, the most lovely client. She came to me a couple of years ago and um, she was coming in for dietary issues. And she also had had a hysterectomy and she was in her 50s. And I thought, oh, she's going to have libido issues. And I said, so how's your libido? Because I didn't see it marked on her form. She said, my libido's great. She said, my husband, we couldn't wait till the kids left. 
<laughs> she said, when that man walks through the door, I don't know what it is. It's been 30 years I've been together. Wow. She said, he just turns me on. He just, and I am, we just have the most amazing chemistry. And I remember that. And I'm thinking, wow, this woman had a hysterectomy. I know her hormones are shot, but uh-huh. she had this, I mean, she loved her husband and she was great to have the kids. She loved having the kids out of the house because they had sex everywhere. Oh, I love it. She should write a book. I know. It's like, oh my God, I love you. So it's true. And I really want to emphasize that with people is that the norm is, and I know this is your area and I've said this to people, the norm is what makes the two of you happy? And if you're both consensual, then that's okay. Yes. And you got to talk about what you want. Can we talk about that? Or if your your needs being met, or you're not communicating, your partner's not communicating what those needs are. Yeah, I, I think that that is something. Um, kind of going back to what I was talking about before about like how we just we believe these things, we just absorb these things in our culture, and there's a lot on um, aging and sexuality that people because you don't see it, mm-hmm. it feels like it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't exist. But there are people who are well in their 70s and 80s and 90s who figured out how to have great sex and are still having great sex. So part of, you know, um, whether you identify on the hetero spectrum of your sexual orientation or the homosexual side of your sexual orientation, um, you know, how media portrays heterosexual ideas and beliefs like really impact all of us right Mm -hmm. we we absorb it and what we believe what we see what we don't see impacts us deeply and shows up in the bedroom and I think that was a really great example of how she is a woman who's been married for 30 years in a long-term relationship and they have figured out how to have a great sex life defined by them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think being able to shed that Madonna whore syndrome, you know, the religious ideas, um, like don't have sex until you're married or good girls don't, or women are the gatekeepers of sex and men are the con- conquerors of sex. Like if you can shed all of that and then just really focus on the pleasure, right? Like you can with your partner, co-create this amazing sex life together. My mom, she, God bless her, she passed away about um, just recently, six years ago. She had 10 kids, and she, she said to my niece, who was, had gotten married a few years ago, she said, honey, sex is really important, and always remember that. It's like the glue <laughs> in your relationship. And yeah. I just, and it's true. So the, so I guess what I'd like to ask, and I see this, you know, again, I have women I'm treating and we can talk about the different issues. I think birth control and medication and stress and other factors really influence what we're doing in the bedroom. But it's, you know, if people aren't having sex or, or good sex or meaning like they're both happy, um, you know, what's happening outside the bedroom in terms of intimacy, meaning, and that's where you come in. I mean, we've had some great conversations and I'd love for you to share. You had, 
mentioned um, what you see sometimes, you'll have couples that see you that have done great couple counseling. They communicate well, but it's not, you know, it's not going and getting into the bedroom, you know, and it's, or it's not translating into more sexual intimacy. So can you, I mean, talk about how you get people that are having difficulty in re-engaging. I mean, sometimes, as you said, you know, you go a long period of time without having sex. It's almost weird in a way, or it feels uncomfortable with your significant other to re-engage in that. So how do you get people to start bringing that back into their, into their partnership? Yeah, it's hard because it, it impacts people on many different levels, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there are couples who they're just too busy, right? Yes. Or they're too stressed out. Right. Life is pretty stressful. Yeah. And what happens is, you know, we, um, we're stressed. We have more distractions than ever before. I can't tell you how many people say they have arguments about people, their partners looking at their phones in the bedroom. Oh, geez. They'd rather just, oh, you know, scroll than to, you know, be intimate. Um, and when you're busy and you're stressed out, stress, you know, constricts your blood flow. And sexual arousal is all about that blood flowing, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're clenched all the time from sex, then there's like a release that has to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to really just kind of just get them into a relaxed state. And there's a lot of things that can, you know, really interfere with that. So um, trauma is a huge um, barrier for a lot of people. Um, and when I say trauma, I mean all different types of trauma, not just sexual violence. Um, when there's trauma in your brain, right, your brain's going to react in a particular way. It's going to go into that fight, flight, or freeze response. Mm -hmm. And that is going to just constrict all your blood flow. So what type of trauma are you referring to? What do you see that, that that's common? Every single type of trauma. So people who have developmental trauma who just were never allowed to um, be themselves, you know, whether they grew up in a very neglectful home or an emotionally abusive home. There's a lot of messages that I'm not enough. Yes. And when I'm not enough, doesn't really coincide with the the power that you have to express your sexuality, right? So it's like almost like the polar opposite. Um, if you've had a traumatic event, um, sometimes like it's very hard to even think of yourself as a sexual being because you're so busy, your brain is so busy just trying to manage and function um, and kind of like get back to who you once were, right? Back to normal, quote unquote. Um, but for sexual violence, um, in particular, whoa, you know, you're yeah. engaging in an act that is, you know, very triggering for you. But trauma can have a significant impact on people's sex life. And as a result, people may develop ways to cope um, that make it difficult for them to just really relax and, and enjoy sexual pleasure. What I see on in my office, and, mm-hmm. and I would say, you know, everyone fills out intake forms, and in probably in about four different places, I'm asking about their libido. And Good for you. Yeah, I have to. And I would say with at least 65% of women are having low libido issues. Yes. 
And um, so we kind of talk about that. I have to figure out, is it due to medication? Um, one being birth control. Birth control lowers a woman's testosterone and can, can contribute to just killing her libido and vaginal dryness. And also the progestins. Progestins, um, I keep talking about them, but they're synthetic progesterone. And, um, and that can really drive down a woman's libido. And then if you couple that with um, someone who's under stress and they're living in that fight or flight response, they're shunting you know, nutrients and, and hormones down stress pathways. Because if your body has to choose between running away from a tiger, which your body interprets, whether it's, you know, your boss screaming at you at work or meeting a deadline, your body can't differentiate between the tiger and you meeting modern day stress factors. Exactly. And so if you're always in stress mode, your body's like, well, we're trying to run away from a tiger. So we're not going to have babies right now. Exactly. Right? Because that's why do you have sex? Yes, you have sex. I mean, sex, we're supposed to have that to allow us to procreate and have more little ones in the world. So your sex hormones are compromised, and it's always going to choose survival over that, that, you know, having robust mojo and, I mean, sex hormones. I mean, who's going to, how sexy does one feel and how, you know, aroused can one be if they're constantly under stress? That's right. And, right? and, and it just doesn't happen, right? No. And this is why and, I and think yes. there's and, so many people who are not having sex. And so what I, you know, what's important in, in, in working with clients and, you know, part of that I'm incorporating acupuncture and I'm looking at ways, how do we find ways to dial back the stress? You, you know, how can we find ways to cope differently? You know, yeah. therapy, breathing, yoga, you know, because stress is a perception and, 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 you know, so talk about this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah. I agree with you. And I think that um, like basic knowledge, just like what you said, you know, right. we can't think of being sexy and experiencing pleasure when we're running from a tiger, right? Even understanding like that's what we need to focus on, right? Mm -hmm. That our bodies just can't have those two things going on at the same time. When you feel constricted, you stop the blood flow. You need the blood flow to be able to experience, you know, really healthy, enjoyable sexuality, right? And so even just that basic knowledge, like, oh, how do I allow myself to get into a space where I can relax mm -hmm. and I can enjoy? A lot of people don't like to have planned sex. <clears throat> and when I say planned sex... Um, you know, I always kind of laugh at this. They want it to be spontaneous. They want it to just just happen, like just like in a, every rom-com movie, right? <laughs> but when, and they, and I have a lot of couples who say like, like when we were dating, we just had sex. And I'm just like, no, no, you didn't. <laughs> um, you planned it, you know, you planned the date, you called in, you know, like on Tuesday and you said, you want to go out on Friday and Saturday. You were able to, you know, pick out what you were going to wear and shave and get all these, get your mind ready to like, just have fun and, and enjoy and 
this person's company and have sex, right? And so when you are in a long-term relationship, people start to say like, uh, it's not, you know, spontaneous. It's not happening the way I want it to happen. And it's because you're not even giving yourself the opportunity to just relax and sink into it and just enjoy it. Right. I love that you said that. That's true about, and and I've, um, I, I really love date night. I have clients that like have crazy schedules. I'm like, plan date night. Like just make it happen. And And just allow that to lead you into wherever. But it's finding that way of reconnecting. And I, I even say to people, you know, you're having busy lives. When you get home and you walk the dog, walk together. Reconnect. Yes. Reconnect. Oh, I love that. You yes, know, reconnect. Um, because it's funny, I'd written this down. <laughs> you know, couples, I see this all the time, are spending more time on their iPhone and devices and with their partners in bed. Yes. And that's the conversation that I, I have with clients in the office. And I'm like, get those damn iPhones and those stupid iPads out of your bedroom and talk. Yes. And I actually recommend for couples to plan two different types of date night. Ooh. One is specifically a date night because people aren't having a lot of fun in their yes, lives. Yes, yes, right? exactly. So just wrap your mind that you're going to go out, you're going to have fun, you're going to be silly, you're going to do something that you both enjoy, um, and just laugh together, right? Mm. But sex is something different. And Mm -hmm. planning a weekly sex night for the two of you to come with your mind prepared, right, to just experience pleasure, which I think is so important. I feel that's so beautiful. It is beautiful. So important, right? People don't understand, like, again, kind of going back to, um, and this is why sex education is so, so critical. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, once you understand how your whole arousal system works and that your brain is your biggest sex organ, Mm -hmm. then you know how to take care of it, right? Just like nobody wants to go into a, um, a meeting with your boss and talk about things that your boss wants to know and demands to know right now that you haven't had a chance to prepare for, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with sex. If you know, okay, Thursday night, we're going to go, we're going to turn off the TV, we're just going to connect We're going to just focus on pleasure. So whether that's like a nice back rub or, you know, nice sense or whatever, but you're going to really just like tune into each other in a very sexual way and communicate with each other. Your brain has some time to prepare. You'll get everything that you need to get done, the laundry, the dishes, you know, you'll make sure you take care of that ahead of time so that you can be fully present in the moment and just like allow yourself to enjoy your partner. This is something that people say, like, you know, like even when they do have sex, they're thinking about, oh, did I do this? And did I do this? And tomorrow I got to do this. And I got to let's hurry up and finish because I got to get ready for tomorrow. Like all of these things go through their head. And then they wonder why they're not really enjoying sex because they didn't create a container in their own mind to just say, okay, we're going to put everything else on pause for a minute. And I'm just going to focus in on this sensation that I'm receiving or giving. And that's it. 
That's awesome. I wonder, and I'd, I'd love um, your take on this. I, I feel since we've, you know, started using more and more devices and have more access to phones and iPads and, and computers, it's like our brains are almost wired to make that a priority over anything else. And I remember, you know, the generation I'm from, we didn't have that stuff. You didn't have those things to kind of distract you. They're distractions. They're terrible distractions. But I really do feel that they impede in some way a level of intimacy that couples have when they're around one another. They're always looking at their goddamn phones. Yes. I know you can appreciate this, but I'm old enough where TV actually turned off. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Where'd you grow up? (laughs) And, you know, we only had three channels and, you know, oh, like gosh, yeah. afterwards it's like that static, right? Right. And so people were entertaining themselves after that. <laughs> but now when you have a 24-hour news cycle and you have, you know, like anything you want, you can find out in the palm of your hand, it's very addictive to just be able to focus in on that. And then especially if sex is weird or you have a trauma or, you know, you have these unrealistic expectations, then it's easier to have to focus in on something Mm -hmm. else. I feel that the leading cause for illness and a lot of struggles that we have is the lack of self-care. We don't make ourselves a priority. And for women, I see so many times they take care of everybody else and they put their their needs and wants on the back burner. And I feel that, and when I work with men, I'm the same way too, make you the priority. Make sure that you're eating right and eating real food and getting sleep and making time to take a bath, light a candle, romance you. Yes, you know, masturbate. Masturbate. This is what I want to share. I have a really good friend from years ago, my friend Maggie. And I'd be like, what are you doing tonight, love? She said, I have a date with hand. And she would go through this whole little thing where there'd be a little pillow on the bed and there would be hand with a little glove and then t- and this whole thing. But masturbation and self-pleasure is really important because it's also a way to release stress. Yes, yes. People forget about that. Everybody's complaining about stress, but they're not doing one of the most um, fun and beneficial and effective ways to release stress, right? Yeah. (laughs) And you don't have to worry about, you know, having a baby. Exactly. There's no risk here. (laughs) There's no STD involved here. Pleasure yourself. I had a, um, this is when I was in New York, I had a client years back and she was just not having orgasm. She felt like she kind of lost touch with herself. I actually felt she was in a relationship with someone that it just wasn't a good fit. So I said, you know, do you have a vibrator? She's like, no. I said, well, we're going to take a walk over to Bleecker Street after. She was my last. And I went with her to a little, you know, little sex toy place. And I helped her pick out a vibrator. And um, it really helped her, and she eventually moved on from that boyfriend and <laughs> met someone else, and she's married, and now she's got two lovely kids. Yeah. But I remember that. She's like, really? I said, yeah, we're going to go, and we're going to find something. And I said, this is about you right now. You have to get in touch with what feels good and gives you pleasure. Yes, yes. 
And unfortunately, so many women, because it's taboo and our culture has all these ideas of about masturbation that um, I think gets in the way of people exploring their own bodies. Um, mm-hmm. It is crucial to be able to explore your own, you know, what brings you pleasure? Where are your pleasure points? So that you can share them with your partner. Yes. And so I'm that so they don't have to play a guessing game yeah. as to what exactly, you know, turns you on. And if yes. you know, then you can share it. And you have to share it because Mm -hmm. if you don't share and verbalize and show what gives you pleasure, that's not fair to your partner. No, it's not. It's like planning hide and go seek with your pleasure. And that happens a lot. I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. did you tell your boyfriend or your girlfriend that, you know, this, this gives you pleasure and this feels good? No. I said, well, they can't read your mind. Yeah, and it creates a really, really negative cycle. Yes, it so does. So t- particularly for people who are in long-term relationships. Yes. You know, if you're in a short-term relationship and, you know, yeah, they're matter. there and then they're not, yeah, you know, yeah. it doesn't show up a lot. Right. And this is what I find out is like, you know, in your 20s, you have all these different relationships. In your 30s, maybe you start to settle down. And because you didn't have really develop really good communication skills around your sexuality, what happens in a long-term relationship is that you have this like avoidance cycle that goes on. So you don't talk about what brings you pleasure. So then you become disappointed, right? If you become disappointed, then you start to avoid it, right? Things get a little weird. Then when things get weird long enough, this pressure, oh my God, we should be doing this. Why aren't we doing this? Oh, you know, and then you go and you have sex and then it's disappointing because you built it up to this big, huge thing. And then, you know, you start to cycle all over again of disappointment, disappointment, avoidance, pressure, and then repeat and then repeat. And then after a while, it becomes so difficult for people to get back into that space because it's hurtful. It can be really painful, right? And it can feel like a rejection that then they just start to try to avoid it mm-hmm. at all costs, right? And so they'll pick a fight. They'll say, oh, I have a headache. You know, they'll use humor, busyness, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm too busy or I'm too stressed out. Um, and then they start ignoring your partner's attempts to be intimate. And what happens is that leads to like avoiding all physical contact because you just like, oh no, I don't, if they hug me, it might lead to sex. If they kiss me, it might lead to sex. And I don't want to start this whole cycle all over again. So as you were talking about barriers earlier, this Mm -hmm. is how do, how do you help couples break this barrier? Yeah. Yeah. This pattern, this cycle. Yeah. Education, like naming, like, your arousal cycle, how all the things work, you would be surprised how many grown people, and I'm saying good and grown, like in their 50s or early 60s, who really don't have a basic knowledge of how their reproductive system works, their arousal system works, these myths that they use, and I want to make sure we kind of put pornography on the table too, right? Absolutely. When you come from a a culture where it's not even required for you to provide 
comprehensive sexual education in school systems. You don't even have to be required to actually talk about sex. You can just talk about abstinence and that qualifies as sexual education. Most people for generations have just learned, here's how you don't get pregnant and here's how you avoid getting an STD. And that is the bulk of our sex education, right? So as a result, a lot of people are turning to pornography to learn how to do this, (laughs) sex. And so there's a lot of myths that kind of come in with it. Mm -hmm. I just saw a saying, um, sex is to pornography like the Fast and the Furious movie is to driving, right? It's entertainment. There's lots of, you know, lighting and and editing that happen in pornography. To make that look the way it does. Exactly. So I think just starting out with basic, basic education is important. Then I really work on how to, you know, debunk some of the myths that people just incorporate into their lives as facts, right? And so really looking at... um, instead of having this uh, stair step um, or very prescribed way that pleasure should be, you go to, you know, you do this, you do this, you do that, and then you have an orgasm, right? right? That's the way it should work. I have people start focusing on how do you experience pleasure for pleasure's sake, right? Mm. Because not even in the bedroom, and I'm sure you have come across this, like people aren't even enjoying the things that they say that they like, right? So if we like chocolate cake, we just get the chocolate cake and we woof it down. And then we really, really like it. We just have another piece of chocolate cake, right? Right. We're not slowing down and saying like, why do I enjoy this chocolate cake? Yes. What is it invoking in my pleasure, you know, receptacles in my body, in my mind? You know, what parts of my mouth like this chocolate cake? Is it the texture? Is it the taste? Is it the bitterness? Is it the, you know, they're not even paying attention. It's like, oh, this is a great sunset. Let me take a picture of it, right? Like they don't even just engage in the, how things that they say are pleasurable for them. Well, they're not they being present. How to do that. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I mean, if as you said, if you sit down and have a meal or a wonderful piece of chocolate cake, when you're present, you can experience it yes. with a greater depth. Yes. And that's the same thing because if you're present with your partner, whomever you're with, mm-hmm. you're being vulnerable because you're in the moment. Exactly. Exactly. And how do you be in the moment when you're just like, well, I don't look like a porn star. I'm not acting like a porn star. What do I do with my elbow? You know, oh, I got taxes to pay. You know, like the dishes are in the sink. You know, the dog's looking at me. You know, like there's all these different things that are like in the moment just preventing you from being your best. Mm -hmm. And going back to um, come as you are and those brakes and accelerators, when you have those brakes, they have not just an emotional effect on you. They affect how your body responds to pleasure. Okay, what if I don't like what I saw in pornography? What if I, um, maybe that's a break for me, some of these sexual acts or how women are treated in this. And then it's just like, well, then I have to override that so that I could be in the moment because 
I've learned to like make everybody else and take care of everybody else's needs. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, oh, I don't work. My body doesn't work. I don't like sex. Right? It's just something that I have to do. And sadly, I, I see a lot of women who get into these um, relationships or have these sexual experiences where they don't feel like they can show up and, and they don't have a voice to, to say what I like or, you know, like what is enjoyable or pleasurable for me. And then it becomes part of their belief system, which kind of goes into those brakes and accelerators. If you believe that uh, sex is not for me, you know, like we live in a society where our body is not even our own. Like people in Congress feel like they could just debate it. <laughs> what a woman does with her body. Like it's yeah. just natural to just make these determinations for somebody else's body. So we, we absorb all those messages that it doesn't belong to us. And particularly around sexuality, you know, it's enjoyable for men. And kind of going back to your brain as your biggest mm -hmm. sex organ. If you're not filtering, if you're not challenging, if you're not rejecting some of the toxicity that we are just swimming in around sexuality, then, yeah, it's going to be hard to just be in the moment and be present, right? So I find that a lot of just exploring, like, who told you that should be a part of your sexuality? Mm. Just even questioning that. People are just like, huh, <laughs> I don't know. I just always thought that way. Well, why? It just opens them up to being able to think about things differently mm -hmm. and then trying to get them to focus on what is pleasure for you? Like, how do you address your five senses, right? What does pleasure look like for taste, for touch, for smell, for sight? What's pleasurable for you? know that not just in sex just like in life in, in it's life. joy I mean right I had one client she said I shared on her intake form I do not feel joy and it's important it's important to experience joy and I think the best way to start whether that's in a relationship or appreciating what you're eating or appreciating the company of another person over a cup of coffee is that we being present in the moment and turning off our phones and just being there with that person. We've lost that. You know, I always talk about we lose culture when we don't cook. We also are going to lose a part of ourselves if we forget how to connect. Be because connecting and intimacy and love and joy and sex and all that good stuff all that amazing stuff which makes us exquisite as human beings and we have to come back to that joy and yes. the yes. good stuff yes 
I guess being in my, (laughs) right now I am single, but I think about all the relationships that I've had and I've, you know, intimacy was always in the moment and it was just being so present and having fun and connecting and expressing my needs and my partner's needs, just being so there in the yeah. moment, like a bomb could be going off and it just didn't matter. Well, the bomb might've been going off, but in the bed. <laughs> it's important to be present so you can experience and enjoy pleasure. And that's the key. I think that, you know, kind of going back to this, like almost stair-step way of thinking about um, your sexuality. You have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this, and the end has to be an orgasm, right? Mm-hmm. You have to remember that most orgasms don't last more than 2.3 seconds, right? So the meat of everything that you do sexually has nothing to do with an orgasm. And if you can be present and you can just enjoy it and however it shows up, without forcing it, without having Mm. like, oh, this is the expectation, this is the expectation, and if I don't meet this expectation, then I'm failing or I failed my partner. If you can just, like, feel that touch, smell the smells, be with your partner and just enjoy pleasure for pleasure's sake, your body can start to relax, you can start to de-stress, your body will come alive and just reward you in many different ways that are equally as important as orgasms. How beautifully said. Amen, sister. That is so true. (laughs) So true, my love. So true. Thank you so much for being here today. And give and my thank you for having me. And and give my love to everyone at the Viva Center, which Alina um, <laughs> she works out of. It's on Dupont Circle. And Alina, how can people reach you if they want to work with you? They can reach me at the Viva Center. So vivapartnership.com is um, where I practice and meet with people and do therapy. Mm-hmm. So they can just reach me there. And do you want to leave a phone number? Uh, yes, 202-498-5490. Again, that's 202-498-5490. Thank you so much. And I want to thank everyone for listening in today. I hope uh, this is uh, was an enlightening conversation and may bring a little spark into the bedroom for you. Uh, your partner or hand and uh, (laughs) may you all have a great new year so if you'd like to reach me uh, just you can find me through megrichichi.com please um, subscribe to this lovely podcast the hormone lifestyle zone and on itunes or spotify and subscribe please leave an awesome review i can't wait to uh, see you guys again in a few weeks i am going to have um, Dr. Jonathan Scher on. He is one of the leading specialists in the United States to help figure out why women are not getting pregnant. So have an awesome day, everyone. I'll see you soon and rock on. <laughs>